Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome, folks, to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name is Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing? I'm living the dream, Grant. I am living the dream. The sun is shining. Spring has sprung. <laughs> Still in lockdown, but we're just not going to talk about it. No, no, moving straight on to... Moving to, straight to on. It's good that you've redefined what the dream is and how you're living it. That's awesome. <laughs> Listen, I'm going to I'm going to grab on to any, you know, any straw that I can. <laughs> well, Kim, speaking of dreams and things that dreams mm, are made of, yes. I believe we're having a, a pretty interesting uh, discussion on a topic that's near and dear to both of us. Yes. Something about chocolate to begin with? I know. Today we're going to be talking about chocolate, not just any chocolate. We're going to be talking about the premium vegan and organic chocolate brand called Loving Earth. We're joined today by one of its founders, Scott Fry. He's going to fill us in on everything uh, about Loving Earth, as well as I think we'll take a broader look at the food and beverage space as well. Hi, Scott. Hi, Kim. How's it going? Yeah, not too bad. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Great to be here. So tell me, how did you come about to create a company that makes vegan chocolate? Uh, it was a little bit of a long story, but I'll, I'll give you the short version. Um, I was had been living overseas for many years, uh, working in, in India and then later in Mexico, mainly working with uh, smallholder Indigenous farmers and farming cooperatives and really saw how um, they were getting more and more marginalised um, through the I guess the, um, the the prices they were paid for the sorts of things they were growing and and also through urban expansion and industrial expansion and, and other things like mining and, and stuff like that. And, um, and also what was happening was a lot of the natural environment was being destroyed as these um, smallholder farmers were sort of moved off their land. Um, so I really came up with, was really inspired to uh, create a company that could, I guess, uh, support these smallholder farmers um, in a way that would um, help them preserve their, their culture and also preserve um, the natural ecosystems, um, which, which they are usually the custodians of, the traditional custodians of. So, um, yeah, and I, dis- I discovered cacao in Mexico. I was working on a coffee project down in Chiapas close to the border with Guatemala, uh, which is where... This all, sounds in, this all sounds incredibly romantic, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there were bugs and I'm sure it was really hot and, yeah. you know, I, I'm sure I it was... <laughs> right. Okay, yeah, problems. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, all the adventure. Um, and, and Chiapas was the, the place that cacao, they say cacao was first domesticated by the Olmecs. Who are the ancestors of the of the Mayans, and um, so I became quite fascinated with this story and was working with this guy on this coffee project who also had a side project um, trying to rescue the original heirloom variety of cacao, um, 
that the old mechs had domesticated and he had a small group of farmers and, and, and was trying to, to do that because a lot of the cacao industry in the area had been sort of pretty much decimated. The, the cacao was sort of rotting on the trees because they'd introduced the, the high yielding, more commercial varieties and, and the price just wasn't high enough for people to even bother to go out and, and pick the fruit off the trees. So, um, yeah, so that was sort of how I got introduced to it, came back to Australia and um, I was also uh, really interested in agroforestry and um, how agroforestry can really um, help preserve and restore landscapes and, and create more biodiversity in the, in the sort of agricultural context. And so I um, was really, really interested in, I guess, making chocolate with um, ingredients that came from trees and so that um, we could work with the growers to sort of really encourage this kind of agroforestry system um, that would sort of bring, you know, a lot of benefits to the environment in terms of biodiversity. What's agroforestry? Is it growing things within a forest? Yeah, so ag- agroforestry is is sort of, I guess, agriculture that starts to mimic forestry, if you can imagine. So um, it, it usually involves um, several different sorts of crops um, and, um, you know, in, in the case of cacao, um, it's usually grown in the understory. The, the, the varieties that are, you know, the, I guess the fine cacao, the, the aromatic cacao, um, they, they call them the criollos, um, generally grow best in, in shade. So they grow best in a, in a sort of a multi-storey type canopy system, um, which lends itself to agroforestry and, and then we also use um, um, evaporated coconut nectar to sweeten our chocolate instead of cane sugar. And um, the evaporated coconut nectar comes from the coconut tree, uh, so it's another tree. And um, usually from Indonesia we get it from a, a wonderful uh, cooperative based outside of Yogyakarta. Um, and um, all the trees are there, you know, all of the coconut trees are there so they really encourage biodiversity um, whereas cane sugar is generally grown in areas that have been clear felled um, so the coconut sugar is a lot more um, on the regenerative side of things uses a lot less water they don't use you know any inputs um, and um, and then we also instead of dairy we use um, cashews um, which again comes from a tree um and um so you know and and cashews generally like um a little bit more arid areas so you know in um in fields where there's kind of rocky areas or areas where they often can't grow other things um um that's where cashews love to grow so yeah that was i guess that's a little bit of a background behind sort of the the inspiration behind sort of how we started and yeah Mm. And so were you was your background food like were you a food technician or were you were you an, coming from more an environmental environmentalist background or were you just a dead set hippie sort of traveling around the world just not being worried about the bugs and the heat um, yeah probably a little, <laughs> little bit of both um, I, I, um, I studied 
um, organizational psychology and, um, ah. and um, went, went to India to, to study yoga and, and volunteer on an eye camp, you know, to remove the cataracts from people's yep, eyes yep. and ended up staying there for a long time, getting involved in all kinds of amazing projects um, and, um, yeah, just sort of really got involved in community development work um, over there and that's kind of mm. what took me to Mexico. Yeah. Uh, such a... Um I mean, such a rich experience to then bring into a, a company that and a, and a food business that's really focusing on that, the regenerative aspect of of what we eat and how we produce, you know, the foods, you know, that we that we consume. Uh, so, when you're coming from a from that experience where you formed those those really strong connections with those Indigenous communities in both Mexico and in Indonesia. How does that then translate when you come back to Australia and you're wanting to run, you know, a successful, ideally profitable business? I imagine sometimes there's a bit of a conflict or there's a challenge in maintaining um, some of the the real ethical components. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I, I learned to speak Mexican Spanish um, fluently while I was in Mexico. And from there, I actually made connection with some Indigenous grower groups in Peru, in the Andes and down in the Amazon. Um, so um, I used to do a fair bit of travelling pre-COVID. I used to um, spend quite a bit of time, did quite a lot of trips to Indonesia um, and, and quite a few trips, you know, Central South America. And it's been... 16 years since I've lived in Mexico and I can still speak fluent Spanish. Um, so, you know, I, I do communicate quite a bit with the groups that we work with. We, we work with a, an Ashaninka community in the Amazon now to source most of our cacao. been working with them for six or seven years now and that's been an absolutely incredible project and lots of challenges along the way. Um, I think, you know, when we started the business, there was kind of a window, I think, at that time. You know, the internet was was sort of just gathering some momentum. You know, I was able to start the business, you know, with a small amount of capital. I had a $20,000 loan from a friend and just built a, a website in Dreamweaver and started selling some stuff online and, um, and really just telling the story. We, we you know, I just would tell a story about the growers, where the things came from. I bought a lot of products into Australia that had never been on the market here before, like um, mesquite powder and leucoma powder and camu camu powder and things like yakon and from from the Amazon. And um, yeah, so we 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 sort of there was, and it was just a particular moment in time, I guess, when the market was really receptive to it. And then, obviously, what we found was within four or five years, you know, the rest of the market started catching up with us and, uh, you know, there were other people sort of mimicking what we were doing and as it happens, you know, when you, when you sort of pioneer something, you know, we pioneered making chocolate without roasting the beans and there were a lot of um, a few other companies that sort of started selling product that was sort of mimicking ours and it was it's sort of been an interesting journey because um you sort of see that they're they're kind of 
um, I guess there's not a lot of transparency in the industry and, you know, you're, you're sort of trying to do the right thing and, and trying to be ethical and, you know, be as transparent as possible and then, you know, these other companies see that there's a market there and come in and mimic what you're doing that actually aren't really, you know, they're using roasted cacao and calling it raw and, you know, doing all these different things. And I guess that's just how it works. You know, that's what you kind of have to have to deal with. And, yeah, it's been, been an interesting journey. We've sort of stuck to our guns and I think, I think it's paid off for us. You know, we, we kind of, I think the, I think the, the industry is going through an interesting period at the moment. The last four or five years have been kind of an interesting period without a lot of innovation in the space in particular um, and a lot of the independent stores that we started the business with don't exist anymore. Like a, a lot of those organic stores and organic chains and things have all disappeared over the last, you know, five or six years. And um, it's sort of, I guess, the sector's become a lot more concentrated into, you know, Coles and Woolworths and Aldi and, and the IGAs. What do you think are the reasons for that? Is it that it's become more mainstream or what's driven those changes? I think I think that's it. I think what what happened was it's kind of hard to say exactly. I think it's a, usually you know there are several factors. I think one was you know um, probably about five or six years ago Australia started to come off that economic massive economic boom that we've been sort of on for quite a while. I think that was there. I think the fact that yeah it all went mainstream and that the the supermarket started taking it up, started taking the products up. And, you know, when, when we started, we were the only people doing it. And then, you know, like six, seven years ago, you know, everyone started selling this sort of stuff. You know, Coles, Woolworths, um, Swiss, you know, Blackmores, um, you know, the pharmacy brands, all, everyone. You know, there was so much product in the market. And I think when, when that happens things tend to get diluted as well, like, and, and the values get diluted. And it's, I think it's an interesting, it's an interesting stage in the market at the moment. I, um, you know, I, we, we took, took the brand overseas to Europe and the US and um, we actually had quite a lot of success in the US, um, which is kind of challenging to manage, actually. It was kind of, <laughs> the, the bland, well, it's kind of big. <laughs> yeah, the brand blew up in Whole Foods, and um, and and we really we really struggled to um, to kind of keep up with things, and and um, and a few different things ha- happened, and we had to sort of end up consolidating um, things, and obviously, particularly with COVID, now um, we still sell a fair bit of product, not mainly on the West Coast at the moment, but. I got to spend quite a bit of time in the US and Europe and got exposed to the whole regenerative movement. Um, in 2017, I was at the first inaugural Regenerative Earth Summit in Boulder, Colorado, which was amazing, kind of meeting all the pioneers of the movement over there. And, and then over the next couple of years, really seeing it um, kind of expand and, and really become probably the, the biggest trend in, in the natural products industry in the US, which is, you know, absolutely massive. You know, at Expo West, for example, um, you know, they have a whole climate day um, and, you know, regenerative 
the whole regenerative movement is is definitely the biggest thing on the agenda over there at the moment. Um, and, and so when you talk about that, when you talk about that regenerative movement and you're looking at it in terms of food production and food and beverage, talk to me about what that actually looks like for a product. So say for a product like Living Earth. Yeah, so so um, I guess... So they've, they've sort of launched a new certification in the US called Regenerative Organic, and it was really pioneered by Patagonia, who moved into the food space, and Dr. Bronner's, who, who do the soaps over there. And really kind of what it is, it's um, if you're familiar with biodynamic, so biodynamic is, I guess, the gold standard of regenerative. And, you know, organics was great. Organics was a great progression on, um, you know, conventional um, products, but organics sort of started, as it started to go more mainstream, it started to become a little bit like just without fertilisers and uh, insecticides, you know what I mean? Whereas regenerative is really a whole nother level and it's, it's really about the carbon in the soil and it's really about drawing carbon out of the atmosphere back into the soil and um, I got to meet the guys from Kiss the Ground in Boulder. Kiss the Ground is the, the documentary film on Netflix, the guys that sort of um, founded that production and communications organisation. We did some campaigns with them. They kind of helped us launch our brand over there. It was um, really interesting, but at the moment, and, and Australia is kind of, I guess Australia's become a little bit of a backwater when it comes to the whole climate space, I guess just because of the sort of, I guess. We lost a lot of time. Or, or, we lost or, a decade. Yeah. <laughs> really. And, um, you know, and the, the conversation is kind of all around net zero. And really net zero is just a warm up because there's, you know, about 415 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere and about three parts per million added every year. And net zero is just about stopping the three parts per million being added. But there's still 415 parts per million in the atmosphere. And some people say that needs to come down below 350, and some people say it actually needs to come back more towards 280, which was the pre-industrial levels. And so if we achieve net zero, it's not going to stop climate change because there's still all that carbon in the atmosphere, which is driving everything. So that's where this regenerative agriculture has so much potential because it's the way to draw carbon out of the atmosphere is the oldest technology on the planet, um, and it's called photosynthesis. It's three and a half billion years old, and plants do it. You know, they um, lock it up in their biomass, but they also lock it up in the soil. And so... You know, agriculture can can obviously play a massive role in 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 being part of the solution and, and really drawing down that carbon. Um, and that's why the regenerative movement has so much traction um, in the US at the moment. I know there are companies around that are really engaging in this, like Wide Open Agriculture, which is over in the in WA, is really working in that space. But I don't think it's on a scale. There are some great. For example, one, one of the projects that I've been following quite closely, which is using digital assets, um, and so I've also gotten very much into the digital asset space because there's a, a large intersection between 
ecological services, regenerative agriculture, the carbon markets, carbon credits and digital assets. And for example, a regenerative cattle station in New South Wales has just um, a, a, a project that I've been following, a, a digital project has just digitised carbon credits harvested from that uh, regenerative um, cattle station in New South Wales and sold those digital carbon credits to Microsoft. And so Mi- Microsoft holds those digital to those carbon credits are actually digitised in the form of digital tokens. And so Microsoft holds them in a digital wallet and they will sit on the balance sheet of Microsoft. So is this like another for, is this like another cryptocurrency? Yeah, look, it's it's I, I, terminal. You've got to be careful with terminal. I know, right? Like, I mean, that's like a dirty. I know that that's like a dirty word. It's it's not Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, it's not Bitcoin. Um, no, the <laughs> um, digital assets are, are just you know digital ways of representing value, right? So so um, Bitcoin was a pioneer in the space. Bitcoin is a little bit like dial-up and now we have ADSL and NBN. So there's kind of, you know, third and fourth generation um, technology out there that is quite advanced. Um, You know, in Europe, we actually did a pitch to Planet Organic, which is the biggest organic chain in the UK, and they helped us launch the brand into Europe. So a very good relationship with them. And their um, reward system, like their loyalty program, is all digital. So they're all kind of digital, all their points and everything are all digital. You know, it's all like digital assets, so to speak. And and, um, their customers, they have an app and in that app is a digital wallet that their customers get. And so it all happens via QR codes. And so this this whole kind of digital transformation that's coming, that's that's another digital wave that's coming with this technology. And it's it's, um, as it starts to hit, the retail sector, you know, it's it's going to be quite interesting. I just noticed, I just read an article today about how Marvel is um, now working on creating NFTs, non-fungible tokens, which is a sort of a new buzzword of the digital asset space for for their um, different characters. And so this is this is going to be a really big big transformation of the um, of the retail space and. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it because, you know, I've had my head in that space quite a bit because I feel it's a way where companies are really doing the right thing and are really working with their supply chains. For example, we pay five US dollars a kilo to the farming cooperative for our cacao, right? And we're happy to publicize that. We're proud of that. Whereas, you know, in the, in the, in the sector, you know, most companies wouldn't know what the farmers are paid for the raw materials that they're buying. And if they did know, they wouldn't want to disclose it. Mm, yeah. It, it strikes me that where you're at and what you're talking about here is it's like when you are coming back to the core of what is important in the foods that we eat or the products that we consume and how they are grown and how everyone involved in that supply chain is treated equally and paid fairly is then, which all really should be just fundamental, basic human rights across the board, then combined with the latest right on the pointy end of 
technology and technological theories or schemes. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, for, for example, um, you know, the grocery industry, particularly the chocolate industry, is presiding over probably the biggest slave operation in history. You know, in West Africa, there are 25 million people working for one US dollar a day so that everyone can have their cheap chocolate. And, you know, there, there are a lot of things happening out there that, you know, the industry doesn't really want people to know about. And, and I think as this, as this technology starts to come through into the marketplace, my hope, and, and, there, and there are lots of people working on this, is that some players, some early movers, and, and we hope to be one of these, you know, when the timing's right, to provide a level of complete transparency, you know, it will enable us to provide, you know, transparency in a, in a very um, kind of user-friendly with the people buying our product. Um, and we hope other people will start to do that as well. And so that people start to demand that more. And as people start to demand that more, I think that's where it's going to start to have an effect. And, you know, I think the, the industry, particularly the supermarkets, have, you know, played a big role in, in sort of really driving down the cost of food and driving down people's expectations about what they're prepared to pay for food. But I think, you know, hopefully that will start to change. It's something, you know, we've, we've um, had a great relationship with the, the kind of independent grocery sector and that's been our, our sort of bread and butter. But as that has receded with those shops closing, you know, we've had to enter into the mainstream supermarkets and we've developed quite a good relationship with Woolworths and I've really appreciated, you know, our conversations with the buyers there and in, in that they are really prepared to come on this journey with us and they haven't, they haven't really asked us to reduce our prices and they haven't really squeezed us and they've sort of started to appreciate, I guess, what we're trying to do because I, I guess they see that things will have to change. I don't think they're going to push the change. You know, we saw it was such a big deal, I mean, just for them to get rid of plastic bags. Yeah, <laughs> but really what, what this is, I mean, I think one of the things that comes from this is the, the fact that you've got a product that's really deeply principled and based on some, you know, some absolutely rock solid, you know, ethical structures, but the benefit of the latest sort of technology is going to enable companies like Loving Earth for consumers to be able to see that much clearer and much more quickly than they would have otherwise been able to. Yeah, just just for example, just to sort of finish up, I guess, um, this Ashen Inca cooperative that, that we're working with. So we started working with them. The Rainforest Foundation had been working with them from the UK to get them land rights and everything. Their funding was running out. And this community needed a source of economic activity. And so that's where we came in. I just happened to be in South America at the time. And anyway, we were able to start working with them, help them form a cooperative, got them certified organic, got them set up bank accounts, got them exporting cacao. And we built that up over the years to the point where they won the United Nations Equator Prize for the New Economy category in 2019. And to the point where those communities have been the worst hit by COVID in the world, but this particular community have managed to stay COVID free. 
because of all of the protocols and infrastructure that was set up through this cooperative, and they were able to keep their economic activity going at the same time. So that gives you a bit of a sense for the kind of impact that the product is having. And I guess what we're wanting to do is to be able to show that to to the people buying the product. David will triumph over Goliath. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I guess it's just a matter of playing the long game, you know, where, where, you know, it's like. That's, yeah, I was just going to say, this is a a long game. I'm turtle, you know, I'm I'm with the turtle, you know what I mean? (laughs) Just slow and steady, slow and steady. (laughs) <laughs> hey, um, uh, look, I can't believe I'm going to have to stop the conversation now. I feel like this is a conversation that could go on for some time. Um, it would be great to have you back like down the track once all of these things are really underway uh, and, you know, world domination is but uh, – <laughs> But a token, because <laughs> you realise that I that you, you realise Scott that I am of an age where you start talking about those the, those digital things and some sort of you know absolute steel trap comes down across my brain, totally incapable of understanding. It's a wave but I do. Coming, don't worry, you'll get swept up in it. I know, right? I, I appreciate I appreciate it, and I'm doing my best. Hey, um, you guys all thought we were going to be talking, you know, about chocolate, and we actually started to look at and discuss entire, you know, food production systems and economic, uh, you know, theory. So, you know, don't say what you don't deliver. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Scott. Thanks, and uh, And, uh, yeah, it's quite a ride. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Scott. Thanks, Kim. And of course, thanks, folks, for joining us for yet another very informative episode as once again, we go from one extreme to the other, from chocolate I to know, right? you know, non-fungible tokens <laughs> and economic theory. This has been awesome. It's been quite a ride, squeezed into half an hour. So with that, folks, we'll thank you for joining us. We'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode where the Food and Drink Business Podcast takes you on quite the range of topics. But until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.